We're looking at Psalm 102. We're learning how to pray as the psalmist prays. And this particular psalm begins with a title that says, The Prayer of One Who Is Afflicted. The Prayer of One Afflicted When He Is Faint and Pours Out His Complaint Before the Lord. That tells us a lot, doesn't it? Right there. It tells us what the psalmist is going through. He's got a pretty big problem that he's afflicted or poor or faint or feeble. And this idea here is that he, uh, he's faint. The idea is that he's overwhelmed. He's on the verge of a breakdown. There's too much going on. But he has a remedy. He's going to wrestle with God in prayer. And so the prayer is actually called a complaint. Is somewhat of a protest in pain. It's a cry for help. And he's going to the right person with his problem. So let's give attention here to God's word. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let me cry to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away. In the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Let's pray together again. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would open up this text, that we would understand your loving heart that we know the duties that you require of us and what we are to believe about you and that we'd rest in Jesus. We ask in your name, amen. 
You may recall, I think I told the story about Tony Evans, the time he got stuck in the elevator. And the elevator got stuck, and there's all these people, and they all started panicking. They all started complaining to each other and crying for help. And Tony Evans was like, enough of that. And he finally grabbed up the red phone, and he called for the professionals, someone outside, to come and help. And, and they said, we'll take care of this, no problem. We'll be there shortly. And they fixed the problem. And his point was real simple. You can yell at each other all you want in that elevator, and I ain't going to do a lick of good. You can cry all you want on your beds and wail on your beds and mourn in self-pity. That little promise of rebuke in Hosea 7 says, I would redeem them, but they speak lies about me. I'd redeem them, but they speak lies about me. God's people, what, what lies might we speak? Like God doesn't care. God does, blesses everybody else but me. God doesn't hear my prayers. God's forgotten about me. And yet, he goes on to say, they don't cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. We thought cutting was something new, huh? No, all the way back in Jesus' day and before. Well, when you read this psalm, you're thinking, this guy's got issues, right? I mean, those first 11 verses, he is really crying out for help. I mean, if this guy turned in his resume and that was his cover letter, would you, would you be calling him for an interview? What do you think? You'd be like, wait, that's way too much drama, those first 11 verses. That's way too much. I think I'll click delete and move on to the next resume. Um, but that's not how we should view this. Um, so we're going to look through this this morning. Let me give you four P's as an outline. So the first is verse 1 and 2 is a plea for help. And then verses 3 to 11 <clears throat> is the portrayal of the plight, or the problem is being described. Portrayal of the plight. Then verses 12 to 22, the promises of God. Faith is going to override the problem. And then the last three verses, 25 to 28, are the permanence of God. So verses 1 and 2, we have a plea for help. Now, if you just took out these phrases alone, the very beginning of those first two verses, where else would you speak like this? Do not hide from me, incline your ear to me, answer me speedily. If I were just to take that and say, where does, what does that sound like to you? You'd say it sounds like a parent who's really mad at their child who's tuning out. <laughs> and unless you're schooled in the language of the Psalms, you would think that's what this was about, but it's not true at all. And God is not offended with a prayer like this. Do not hide from me. Incline your ear to me, answer me speedily. God loves when his children cry out in prayer like this. As a matter of fact, it, Jesus gives us something very similar when Porter preaches on the persistent widow not that long ago. And when Jesus finishes the parable and he gets to the instruction part, he says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give to them justice speedily. That's a promise. And we want to remind him of his promises when we wrestle with him in prayer. So we have these cry for help in the midst of, of his a big ordeal that's going on. And we're not told exactly what it is. But verses 3 to 11, we have simile city. Count how many likes are in verses 3 to 11. Let me give you a minute. Just start counting. 
How many likes do you see in verses three to 11? Because it took me a while to count them. There are a lot of metaphors. How many did you get? Nine. And there's nine verses. There's nine metaphors and nine verses. So let's take a look at them. My, for my days pass away like smoke. This is what's actually gonna happen to the wicked. We're told in Psalm 37, let like smoke, they vanish away. So it's, it's, for the, it's for the righteous to take heart. The wicked are gonna get it. And you don't need to envy that they're getting away with all of the evil things that they do. But here, the righteous is feeling like, well, it's happening to me. That I'm suffering and I'm afflicted and he feels though as the lot of the wicked has fallen on him. <clears throat> I think it means that. It could also mean the idea is that everything's going up in smoke. It's the imagery of a vapor. But the next part says, my bones burn like a furnace. He's describing a fiery affliction, fiery trials, in which we will come out as gold. The psalmist doesn't see himself here as coming out or as gold or silver that's made pure through the fire. He feels his life is just dross. It's pointless, it's, it's painful. When we were in Honduras, <clears throat> I think both times I've been, we went to the little, this little factory where they show us how they make pots. And you wonder, well, how did they make these pots and pans? Well, it's like, imagine something smaller than your basement, and that would be the little factory. And then there's a handful of workers that are like uh, less than 10 people. And there's a big fire, and in this big fire, they take metal, and they just throw all kinds of scrap metal into that fire. And they get that, that metal burning so hot that it basically turns like a lava. And then they run it down, and I can't remember how they ran it, if they put it in a wheelbarrow or they just made a track, but they already have these pre-carved uh, pot, uh, what it's gonna look like, and then they pour the, the stuff right over it, and then as that uh, metal cools, and then they take all the slag, or all the dross, all the junk, and they throw it against the side. And, and then when they lift up the top, they get this beautiful pot, okay? And the idea here is this, the, the psalmist is describing his life. He feels like, I am in the furnace. My bones, are, I'm, my bones burn like a furnace. I'm in this fire, and he's really wrestling with, Lord, I don't know if this is gonna, if I'm gonna be dross, I'm gonna be slag, or I'm gonna be silver. Is there any good coming out of, anybody relate to this? You ever wonder, like, what is God doing? I'm in, the, I'm in the furnace cooker, and what is God doing? Well, let me just remind you a couple things for those of you that are there this morning. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were once in a furnace, and Jesus was right in there with them. Jesus is with you. Number two is the promise that in this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is a good father. And if we're in that furnace of affliction, he's disciplining us for our good. 
our good that we may share his holiness. And it's not, it's not pleasant, it's definitely painful, but it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness, we're told in Hebrews 12, to those who've been trained by it. It's not a fun place to be. And as C.S. Lewis talks about in the problem of pain, you know, we, the intolerable compliment is we didn't want to be loved that much. I want you to love me a little bit, God, but not enough that you're going to tear down the very foundations of this house and build a whole new one and build a mansion, build something glorious. But when you're knocking down the pillars, it hurts. God's doing something far more than we wanted him to in our hearts and lives. And the psalmist says that my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. It's grass that's getting cooked in the scorching sun. It lacks water. It's screaming for water on an oasis. And there's none, there's no relief. He's in this slow torture of a fiery trial. And there's no escape from the heat. The heat is on. And the psalmist says, I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. That's, he's emaciated. He's not eating well. He's losing weight. This trial and this grief is overwhelming him. Have you ever had that where you're so grieved that you're actually losing weight? You're not eating. This is like classic depression. And he goes on. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness. And, and there's a few Hebrew words here that we really don't know what they mean. I mean, desert owl. I mean, it's like, uh, we're not really sure what bird this is referring to. Um, like an owl of the waste places, I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the rooftop. Boy, there's a, there's a simile for you. We have a desert owl, the owl in waste places, and a lonely sparrow on a rooftop. It's all the imagery of what? Loneliness. Screams loneliness. Reminds me of Psalm 27. It says, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. I wonder if some of you saw the Washington Post article that came out earlier this month. And it was picked up, it was picking up an article from the Harvard Business Journal where the former Surgeon General, and I'll see if I can pronounce his name right, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy, says we have a new health problem in America. It's not obesity, it's not diabetes, it's not smoking, immunizations, HIV, or, or cancer. It's something that he says is much greater. And it affects 40% of Americans. And it's loneliness. Loneliness. He says loneliness, he puts it in the category of a healthcare crisis because he argues that loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than that associated with obesity. He says loneliness is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety. And he says at work, loneliness reduces task performance. It limits creativity. It impairs other aspects of executive function, such as reasoning and decision-making. And he also argues that this rate of loneliness has doubled since the 1980s. And he also goes on to say that many, many more are saying that they no longer have a close friend or a confidant. So the numbers are declining. We have to make an intentional effort to be about community as the church. We have to look around. We have to, people, you know, people aren't looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. 
And relationships has to be a priority for each of us, even when we don't feel like it. Being in a small group, a ladies group, a men's group, committing to forming and developing spiritual relationships, this is going to continue to be a problem. It's funny, he didn't list the church as one of the remedies. He gave some answers for what to do at work, but you know, this is one of the reasons that we want to be intentional about the horizontal emphasis of the church is that relationships are key. And so much of our own growth as we grow from others coming along and ministering to us. And this is what this psalmist needs right now. He needs a friend. And he doesn't have anybody. <clears throat> and he says, all day long my enemies taught, taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Now is that a bad place to be or what? All day long my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Have you ever been in a place where everybody hates you? <clears throat> Any middle schoolers out here? I'll tell you a story from my middle school days. I told this, it's like a once in 10 year story, but I'll tell it one more time. That when I once had an experience in middle school that I can vividly remember, because you know how every, in middle school, everything's a crisis. It's like there's drama and you remember and you're very vulnerable to, to people <clears throat> what they think of you. Well, the prettiest girl in the whole school, her name was Christy. And they had these pictures that they would do with Olin Mills where they'd come around and do the pictures. This is before Facebook, okay, for you young people. <clears throat> and when they would do these pictures, you could get 16 or 32 wallet-sized pictures that you could pass out to your friends. All the older people remember this. And if you, were, if you could get one of these pictures off of one of these pretty girls, I mean, that was something to say. But not only did she give me her picture, one of these wallet side pictures, but she signed it and had a little note that she wrote on it. And I didn't know which side to look at more, you know, the back side or the front side, but I sure loved that little picture. And I can't remember what happened, but something happened between me and her, there was a rift. And we were never like a thing or anything. I mean, I wanted her to be a thing, but there wasn't. And, but somehow I got upset and I took that little picture and I ripped it in fours. Rip, rip. And I put it in my pocket. And then gym class came along and we would have to go out to the field and we would have to run like a mile around the track, around the football field. <clears throat> Somehow, lo and behold, a piece of the picture came out on the ground. You can tell where this story is going. With a Shakespearean twist and all, the girl that nobody liked in the whole school, her name was Tina. She found the little piece of a picture, one-fourth, and she thought, that looks like Christy. That's Christy. And she, she gave the picture to Christy. Well, the part that she saw was the part that said, to Charlie. <laughs> and now it's been ripped. And this was like faster than a Facebook post or a Twitter feed. All the ladies realized that if Charlie can do this to the prettiest girl in the school, like, what's up for us? Like, they're, all the ladies banded together, and they all had a mission, and it was hate Charlie Bale. <laughs> and I can still remember coming in after recess, and they, all the girls gathered behind me, and they were kicking the back of my shoes every time I lifted up my feet. And they would murmur things in the hallways as I would pass by. And I was just mortified that I had ripped up Christie's picture. 
Well, Christy, I'm really sorry if you ever listen to this. <laughs> That's how I felt. All day, my enemies taunt me. They deride me, use my name for a curse. That's a bad place to be. And if you're there, Lord have mercy. And he goes on, he says, I eat ashes like bread. Ashes is a symbol of, of grief. So there is just grief and mourning. And he's mingling tears with my drink. So he's describing like the drink that, that he's mixing a, a concoction that's mixed with his salty tears. He's describing himself as an evening shadow withering away like grass. And he says, because of your indignation and your anger, for you have taken me up and you've thrown me down. And he feels utterly insignificant and he's insecure and he senses his life is passing him by, he's gonna be gone, gone for good. But he believes God's angry at him. And if you're here this morning, you think God is angry at you. If you're not in Christ, you're not a believer, he is angry. The Bible does say that he's angry with the wicked every day. But to those who come to Jesus, this is where we need our theology to remind us. We believe in these two big words called expiation and propitiation. He expiated our sins. He got rid of them on a cross. They are gotten rid of so that he can be propitiated and his wrath is turned from you. Atonement means at one -ment. Therefore, your sins are never paid for twice. God disciplines his children out of love, but he's not angry. All of his anger was poured out on Jesus, and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he, you would never be. So we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. So verses 12 to 21, we get a shift, and boy, is it a wonderful shift. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, thank God for all the but passages in the Bible. The but God passages, the but you passages. In verse 12, we got a, we got a big one. It begins with but you, but you are enthroned in the heavens. The seesaw has reached the bottom and the feet have now sprung with faith in the promises of God and now the seesaw is beginning to go back up again as he takes heart in reminding himself of God's design and purpose in the world. The psalmist is looking ahead and believes with faith that God will rebuild Zion. He will rebuild Jerusalem. He will rebuild the temple, the place where God, people would meet God and experience his favor with Zion. And now we, the people of God, we look back and we see what God has done to build Zion, to build the church of which the gates of hell will not prevail against. The psalmist looked ahead, we look back and Jesus is all over this song. Are not verses one to 11 ultimately about Jesus? Think about all those verses that were just described. They were the psalmist experience, but as we've said before, that a lot of these psalms and prophecies in the Bible are like a rock skipper, and they skip across the pond and they hit more than once. It's not like the grenade you throw and boom, it hits once. This one hits twice. It hits with the psalmist who wrote it, but ultimate hits on Jesus. Was not Jesus the one who was despised, rejected by men? Was he not the man of sorrows? Was he not acquainted with grief? Was he not one from whom men hide their faces? He was despised and we esteemed him not. And why is he doing that? Because he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. 
We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. Was not Jesus in the midst of a fiery trial? So much so that it was a cool night in which Peter had to warm his hands to keep himself warm, and yet Jesus is sweating drops of blood? Is he not in a fiery furnace? Was Jesus not the lonely sparrow when he asked for help in his darkest hour in the garden and his disciples keep falling asleep? His only companion, we are told in Luke, was an angel that came to him to strengthen him. All the disciples forsook him and fled at his arrest. Isn't Jesus the one who experiences the taunt of enemies? The enemies making fun of him prophesy who hits you as they punch him again and again. Hail, king of the Jews, as they whack him on the head again with the crown of thorns that they made. He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. If he desire him, for he said, I'm the son of God. You who destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. That's what Jesus got to hear from the cross. And if we were there, it probably would have been our voices screaming just as loud as the rest of them. So verse 1 to 11 are about Jesus. How about the rest of the psalm? Is not Jesus enthroned now forever? Is he not seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Is he not remembered now throughout all generations? Psalm 22 says about Jesus that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Isn't that why God now arises and has pity on his church, pity on Zion? This is the day of salvation. Now is the time of the Lord's favor. Is not Jesus the one that's seen throughout this psalm? He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Lord builds up Zion, verse 16. He appears in his glory. Did not Jesus appear in his glory at the transfiguration? Will he not return in all his glory? And does he not now regard the prayer of the destitute and doesn't despise our prayers? Verse 17. Let this, verse 18, be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord this morning from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church and their children. Why? That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven. The Lord looked down at the earth. He looked at the earth and he didn't just look. We know he came. Why did he do it? Verse 20. To hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. Did not Jesus say in his first sermon, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did not Jesus destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery? For surely it's not angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. This psalm is about Jesus. 
from beginning to end. And we know that verse 25 to 27 is what is quoted in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, that this isn't about angels, the writer of Hebrews says, but this is about the sun, he says. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Who made heaven? Jesus. Who made earth? Jesus. What's going to happen to the earth? They will perish, but you, Jesus, will remain. They'll wear out like a garment. They'll be like an old pair of Levi's that you just throw in the scrap heap or send them over to Salvation Army. That's what's going to happen to the world. You'll change them like a robe and they'll pass away. But you're the same, Jesus, and your years have no end. For yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same. And what's the good news of that? The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. You see, this is about Jesus. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God made a covenant between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And there was a mission to be accomplished. The scriptures cannot be broken. And Jesus' mission was to come and save sinners. And none can stay his hand. He will save his people from their sin. God is the same, and he cannot change his plan and his covenant. And therefore, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. You see, the beginning of this psalm and all through it, you're seeing this insecurity, this great affliction. He's overwhelmed. But by the end of the psalm, there's rest. There's something permanent. The children of your servants dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This idea of eternal security. Tim Keller tells a story about a, a lumberjack. And this lumberjack had to go out into this forest and take down all the trees. But in this little forest, there was this one precious bird that was up in the trees that he noticed. And so he kept whacking on different trees to make the bird move because he knew that, that those nests were all going to be destroyed. But he wanted to save the bird, so he kept whacking. Bam, bam, he would bang on the tree and then the thing would move and one day, you know, he'd knock down these trees and then the, the bird was trying to build a nest somewhere else and he kept having to bang on all the trees. And he kept banging on the trees till finally this bird built her nest in the rock. And when he saw that the bird had moved to the rock, then he knew he could take down all the rest of the trees. Well, every tree in this world, you guys, is coming down. Where's your rock this morning? And Jesus comes and he takes his sledgehammer and he starts banging at all these things that you're putting your trust in. Every institution, every job, every love that you have, your children, bam, your career, bam, your health, bam, and he knocks out everything so that you will fly over and land and build your nest in the rock. The children of your servants dwell secure. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, not, you can't even rest in the, in the created world. Even that is gonna be gone. Jesus is the only thing that doesn't change. But you can rest in him and find security. And so as we come to this table, that's the beautiful thing about this table. It's a reminder of what's permanent, of what happened in the past when Jesus 
was fulfilling the, the, what happened with the lamb being slain in the Old Testament so that the blood, the Passover lamb would pass over and Jesus comes to fulfill it and he is the lamb that is slain so, the, so that the, you are passed over. But it's a constant reminder of what's permanent to come that we will feast with him. We can dwell secure. Anything else you put your trust in is insecure. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Be our all in all. And now as we come as your children to this table, we come as beggars needing bread, the living bread. Thank you that you meet with us. Open our mouths wide and fill it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.